Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosovsky, here as usual with my favorite critic, Courtney Smith. Hello, how are you today? Great, how are you? I am doing well. You know, it's we're still in TIFF mode, so it's a great time of year. Yes, that's why I'm a little bit hyper. <laughs> I think, <laughs> a little I loopy. Think. We're all a little loopy. <laughs> that's right. If you're not exhausted, the adrenaline has kicked in and you're just a little bit hyper. <laughs> so... So, yes, here we are recording during TIFF. Uh, we've watched a lot and uh, we've done a lot. And uh, let's just get to the movies because I think that's what people want to hear about. So, Courtney, I'm going to ask you to start us off. Oh, OK. Well, you know what? I will start off with a drama um, that really took me by surprise i I did not have much expectations for it because i didn't know too much about it but it's a a german film um entitled the teacher's lounge um and i believe the filmmaker is ilker katak Uh, my apologies if i'm mispronouncing the name but the 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 premise and most of the story takes place within a um, german junior high and there's a rash of thefts that are occurring and the staff believe it's the students that are involved and they start to take matters in their own hand in terms of questioning students going through their stuff when they really shouldn't and you have this young teacher that comes in and her name is carla she's kind of fresh out of college and she doesn't believe that those tactics are right so she decides to do her own little investigation and at which point it sets off a chain reaction. And a a lot of the film is about the way how we are quick to judge um, and often react without proper evidence. And then also when we are quick to react and make claims that we cannot prove, what are the fallouts of that? So you have the, you have Carla doing her investigation. You have the teachers with their own, thing and then the students start to get involved and the student paper starts to cover it and it's just a huge storm and that's all i will say about it um there's a battle of wills that occurs in this film and carla who thought she was on the right path and doing the right thing starts to have to reassess all the swirl that's going on around her Uh, it's a great film i believe germany might be submitting it as their it is it um, is. I was, Oscar. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, and it, it's very good. So keep an eye out for Teacher's Lounge. Um, I'm sure it'll get a release this fall or during award season. You know what? You know what you made me uh, think about? it. Speaking of Germany and Oscar award submissions, mm-hmm. there's a film by Vin Vanders that's in the festival. Oh, it's okay. played at Cannes. And it won the Best Actor Award, rightly so, it can. And so Wim Wenders, the great German director, he's, he has made this film in Japan called Perfect Days with a Japanese co-writer and, of course, starring the great Japanese actor Koji Yakusho, who, you know, if you look him up, he's been in so many so many things that you know and he's he's a fantastic actor and this film perfect days is japan's entry to the academy awards for the best international film mm-hmm. so i'm just going to tell you quickly about perfect days because it's it's one of my favorite films 
uh, of the festival so far. And I think it, it will remain that. And I think it will be one of my favorite films of the year. And it's Vim Vendors is back to true, perfect, beautiful narrative form. Like we haven't seen him make a great drama for, you know, maybe 20 years. Yeah, he's gone off into to, uh, documentary and things like that. And I think the influence of his documentary filmmaking can be seen in this film. I mean, he's always had this like really interesting way of dealing with his characters and his spaces and things like that. But I think that his work in documentary, especially like this sort of more observational style is really here. You can see it here where you get this dramatic film that's actually it's made in the form of an observational documentary. It's a slice of life about a man played by Yakusho. Uh, his name, so the character's name is Hirayama. And Hirayama, he just, he has a simple life in Tokyo. He cleans public toilets. That's his job. And he has this regimented life. This is the same routine every day, even on the weekends. Not the same as, you know, the workday, obviously, but even on his weekends, they're the same, but in that regimented life, which is why you can see, you can see why he's okay with cleaning toilets because it's a, it's a kind of detail oriented kind of job and he's happy. And the reason that he's happy is not simply because he appreciates the simplicity of life and the way that vendor sort of shows you his point of view, but also the way that vendors show you and the actor shows you how this character just is able to see past the mundane details of life and appreciate things around him, see the beauty. And um, yeah, it's, oh, I could just go on about this film, but I, I guess I shouldn't. Uh, I just, <laughs> I just want to like tell people that there's this concept in Japanese, uh, that if you do see this film, and of course it, it will be released, uh, there's this concept in in Japan of, of um, it's called it's called komorebi, and that's based on the Japanese word for sunlight. And the concept, sort of the way of life, the way of thinking, it it it, uh, it sort of prescribes this way of going beyond darkness to see to seek out the light. And so that's why, based on the word for light, it's like, look beyond the shadows to find the light. And so this flickering of shadows and flickering of things that happens in in his waking life, in his dreams, it's like, it's very instrumental to understanding the character and the point of view and like the way that vendors really realize, the way that the, the actor and the director work together is incredible and vendors just like he leaves the camera on his face and the actor does so much of the work it it sounds simple but it's really actually quite complicated and incredibly beautiful mm -hmm. oh sounds great um do you want to talk a bit about limbo i think we can stick with the um the narratives before jumping into the docs yes limbo okay so um in time <laughs> In terms of great cinematography and in terms of great characters, things like that, um, 
limbo is like it's it's on a completely different scale but in a way it's also it's very it's very centered around the character which is this detective uh detective travis hurley played by simon baker who a lot of people know and uh this is a film from australia the director is ivan sen so some people will know his work um and also ivan sen's work has been described as outback noir it's so yeah like this is set in the australian outback shot in this incredible landscape panoramic um but it's also this sort of like dead landscape in a way but it it sort of reminds you like it reminded me of a of a western so it's kind of like what outback noir is perfect because it's like it's got that sort of like stranger in town western scenario but it's also got this noirish kind of existential bent to it because uh, well he's he's pretty messed up he's got his own inner demons he shows up he's obviously got issues and addiction issues and things like that but his job is to investigate um like a 20 year old case uh, involving uh, an indigenous community and it was actually it's a 20 year old cold case of a murdered indigenous girl and like she was only in her teens and so he comes and he talks to he starts with the family and of course nobody wants to talk to him like typical noirish scenario nobody wants to talk to him and and that and he sort of seems detached from the whole thing mm-hmm. until you know he like it's the the film beautifully wonderfully slowly sucks you right in and you can see after a while that it's sucking him in the story of what happened and the characters and the people their lives are sucking him in as well because you know this this is a difficult life they're leading and it's a difficult place to live in and being indigenous in the outback it's like that's a difficult situation as well and they're feeling that you know there was no justice then why is there going to be justice now um i don't want to ruin it but you know the fact that it's called limbo that that title that word that concept just reverberates throughout this film oh interesting it's, uh, it's really really interesting yeah really good and simon baker's great mm-hmm. you know an understated performance that really gets you okay well along those lines uh, i'm going to talk about shame on dry land uh it's a film that i believe is like a malta swedish production and it's very much a crime film that is pulpy has elements of um classic noir and the premise is essentially this man by the name of Daman was involved in some let's just say some shady business practices that had forced him to essentially be exiled to a certain extent and at the beginning of the film i think he's a few days of having all his legal problems go away and he sneaks into malta on the eve of his former best friend frederick's wedding um, frederick was a guy that demon unfortunately got hooked up into his schemes and essentially ruined his life so they've been estranged and now the guy shows up on his door on the eve of the wedding 
and Demond looking to, you know, mend the ways. And as the film progresses, you realize that Demond may not be on the up and up like he claims he wants to be. And the woman that helped him even get into Malta, woman by the name of Kiki, is almost like this really cool mafias, mafia doness, because she's not a, a don, but like she's just one of those individuals that has a lot of power and influence. And she says, well, you know, for your life to get back on track, I need you to do me a favor. There's this mysterious insurance guy. I need you to tail him. Now, Demond's previous business, part of the reason he got in trouble was he was doing certain types of fraud that the same guy he's tailing would be investigating. From there, it really gets pulpy. There's a lot of deceits. People aren't necessarily who they claim to be. Um, your views on certain people change, and it's a really fun crime film. Um, it's one of those places, one of those films where almost all the characters are kind of shady, and it works because if you're in the mood for a film about shady characters in a really lush locale, then Shame on Dryland is for you, and it it it, it flies the way how it just good pacing, good aesthetics, um, just a really fun film, and, and especially at TIFF, you need those type of uh crime films in your in absolutely your schedule, so yeah i recommend that um do you want to just i guess wrap up the the dramas by talking about i don't know who you are okay well um, now we're gonna get serious and i have to give people the trigger warning because there's a, a rape in this um in this film and uh, it is this film is so shot in such a highly effective emotional it's because it's shot in this very textured kind of manner everything's kind of in close-up with like a shaky camera and um, you you see the character first uh, it's, it's uh, a Toronto musician that we're following and uh, in his relationship uh, he's sort of um He's sort of grieving a past relationship from like a year ago. He's he's sort of having trouble now with the current relationship. So anyway, I'm not going to ruin uh, what happens, but I'm just going to warn you that uh, something traumatic happens, and it's also traumatic for the audience because of the the way um, it, it's a first time director, writer, director M. H. Murray, and the way that Murray shoots it the, the way he films it and uh the star mark clennon the way that that you know because it's shot close up and we get so attached to this character um what happens and then the aftermath when um the character is like trying to come up with the money for hiv preventative treatment and the difficulties, and then you learn certain realities about how, like, it's not covered, and and like the certain, like, it's just like a really disturbing story. But it's like it's not, it's not without hope, which is a really odd thing to say after what I've just said about the story. But um, it's it's got this resilience in it, and the characters got this resilience that uh, that you eventually find that he eventually finds and so it's very effective in that regard in terms of the performance in terms of of the film everything the experience it's just a it's a it's a unforgettable experience 
Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to say about it. I don't know who you are. Okay, that sounds that sounds very good. I've heard uh, a lot of good things about that film, so I'm going to definitely try and catch that one. Um, I'm going to keep with the emotional theme for for a moment, but as we pivot to the the documentaries, and I'll just talk briefly about Homecoming. Um, it's a film by uh, director Suvi West, and I believe Anis uh, Komi is the was the producer, maybe co-director on that on particular project. Think, yeah, he's a co-director. Anse, I think. Yeah, I know. I know. Did this the great cinematography uh, work in the film, and this, this was a really interesting documentary because it looks at, um, I guess, the premises. West is following these. Um, Sammy artifacts, artifacts from her culture that have been housed in a Helsinki museum. And they're okay, they're finally being returned to Satmi, which is the Sami nation in northern Scandinavia. Um, and as the film follows all of these artifacts, you get the the history of them, but you also really see the deep emotional impact it has on the director. And it also, and what she does, which I quite enjoyed, is she speaks to a lot of people who work at these museums, and they not only talk about the artifacts and the type of people that wore them, but also the mindset when these artifacts were collected. And a lot of the mindset had to do with people thinking that since the Sami were are indigenous, they don't, they're not as bright as, or not as strong, not as capable as white Europeans and just that type of prejudice and how there was a certain amount of entitlement when it comes to to taking these artifacts and and studying them. And there's a lot of moments where you see Wes and other people really connecting and having emotional moments with these pieces. And one of my favorite moments, there's a particular artifact where even Wes herself questions whether or not she should be looking at it because it's not directly related to her lineage and she feels a ways about infringing on someone else's thing. And, and that's something I don't normally see in documentaries. And I, even the fact that she was able to show that conflict, I thought worked really well. So uh, overall, I thought it was a good documentary. I did have a little quibble with some of the stylistic choices. There was a certain images that she used that I thought were effective, but then they kept being repeated over and over and i know it was supposed to create like a little meditative Hmm. um break um like the the... oh i'm forgetting the the terminology because it's not kaleidoscope but it's like when the the image is kind of folding onto itself so that it 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 worked really well at the beginning but i found like she's a little too much um Hmm. in the film but again it's a minor quibble overall i thought homecoming was a was a really moving film it's funny because I found that the more meditative moments were like when um, she was actually speaking to her ancestors because uh, what I really appreciated about the film was that she was explaining how these these items were a way of connect and she was explaining that this was part of the culture was yep. that you you keep the items and they're important to the culture because that's the way of keeping in touch with your ancestors and that's a way of speaking with your ancestors and connecting with your past and connecting with your your identity 
Um, and then there were other meditative moments where she was actually chanting, like it was sort of an incantation to to her ancestors. Um, so I love that because normally, like uh, I've seen what I've seen so far is, you know, the discussion about museums hanging on to artifacts that do not belong to them, the, the discussions about colonialism and how um, these items were taken from people and like the misguided notions that they had that, you know, it didn't really matter, like that the, the white people knew better and were smarter, like, like you said, um, when in fact, she's giving us a perspective that's like uh, no you've got it completely wrong exactly yeah they got it completely wrong and in fact it's a misguided notion that they were operating on uh for example you know the whole christianization concept of like you know you know we're going to make these people better by introducing them to this religion and when in fact there's a, a more um the word is not mature, but that's the word that's in my head right now. It's like a more mature notion mm -hmm. that the the Sami people had, which was that uh, we accept all gods. And so that if they had just presented, the white people had just presented their god as a god, then the Sami would have said, okay, fine, we will, we will listen. But instead, the, the white people had to go, no, screw that. And yeah. just, uh, anyway, I, we, we can't talk too much about it, right? Yeah, that's, but again, that's there's a lot to There's to a lot unpack. to it, and I, I yeah. appreciated that, that it gave us a different point of view on it and that these conversations are going on in museums and it's like the perfect timing and this is like a different point of view than um, a lot of films have given us so far. Mm-hmm. Oh, you you mentioned the or we both mentioned the the meditative aspects of homecoming. Do you want to talk about songs of Earth? Because I feel like that's a another one that has you thinking. Oh, I love that film. That's another favorite of mine. It's very meditative, um, and in terms of encapsulating a philosophy of life, a view of life, um, and giving us incredible cinematography. I think. I'm guessing drone shots going through these like incredible landscapes in Norway, because I don't know how else they would have gotten this. Um, but no, it's not a nature film. And no, it's not a film about her 84 year old father. And no, it's not just a, you know, it's not just a meditative thing. It's, it's so much more than that. It's like, it's a, it's like a profound discussion about life and what's important and an interchange of ideas, of philosophies. There's like, uh, without ruining it, I, I think I'm just gonna, and there are moments in the film that are so complicated. They just like, okay, I'm a crier. I cry during movies when I'm sad. I cry when I'm happy. And I cry more when both things happen at the same time. And I'm just gonna say that this is one of those films when both things happen sometimes at the same time. Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a film that's as you said works on multiple levels like even something as simple as watching the director um margaret olin's father who's at the i guess the time of filming was 84 years old and he's kind of the central guide and so i'm just seeing him 
walking on mountains and over frozen lakes and glaciers. Just that image alone drives home the importance of wanting to connect with nature. And it should be said that this is probably one of the best looking films that I have yeah. seen at the yeah. festival. It is absolutely gorgeous. And me being a, a city person, I came away wanting to be one with nature a bit more. Let's uh, go and so, to Norway. We're going to yeah. go to Norway. <laughs> exactly. And as you said, the, partly because, you know, the, the, the way it approaches life, death, family, history, faith, um, you know, having your roots established in one area even when people don't want your roots established in there there's so much that goes on in this film and it all works beautifully in a way that makes you appreciate life and just the simple joys that that nature offers and i guess the profound things that nature offers as well it's uh it, it's it's a really well done film absolutely um i'm going to shift gears and just bring us a little closer to home. We're going to leave Norway and, and come back to Canada. Uh, I'm going to talk about Summer Camp, and that's Camp Spelt with AQ um, by director Jen Markovitz. Uh, this is a film that focuses on Camp Firefly, which is a camp um, specifically geared to the LGBTQIA2S plus community. Um, and what this camp does is it allows a, a safe space where young people can come have the, the camp experience without having to worry or be bullied, objectified, what have you. And the fact that it's in Alberta, a lot of the participants are coming from areas that are highly conservative, highly religious, um, predominantly white. I believe there's one or two people of color that the film follows um, over the course of it. And we just get to hear these young people talk about the hardships that they're going through in some of these areas. They, there is no other LGBTQ plus person there to, to bounce ideas off of, to connect, not, no older generation to, to learn from where this camp offers all of that. And even something as simple as having like a, in the camp, they have like this clothing I don't want to say drive, but like a a clothing fair where if someone doesn't identify as a particular gender, they can bring the clothes that they were given by that gender and and give it to someone who who does, which is brilliant. It was an absolutely brilliant idea, and it's it's really just a film that allows the kids to share their experiences, but also it's a very joyous film. Uh, the my one nitpick about summer camp is because it's set in such a conservative um, province like Alberta. I wish that it had taken at least five minutes just to kind of talk about the outside world of this camp. Like we hear it from the kids, but I feel like this is a camp that is probably endured some type of strife. Um, either people trying to use it to push their own agendas, what have you, especially in a time where, something as simple as pronouns has become this unnecessary debate that it has it snowballed into. I feel like there's a whole world outside that impacts this camp that the film doesn't quite talk about. But having said that, when it focuses on the kids, which is the main thing, it, it is a, a delightful and uplifting film. That sounds great. 
So speaking of the LGBTQ plus community, there is a documentary that is a collaboration between um, Deepa Mehta and um, Surat Tangia. Uh, my apologies if I mispronounced that name. And the film is called I Am Surat, and it follows Surat, who's a transgender woman living in Delhi and having to struggle with her identity um, living in a place where they are open to the queer community, but only to a certain extent. So when she goes to work, she can dress up like her true self. But when she's living at home with her mother, who she has to take care of, she has to be male presenting. And it, the film ha is partly shot on iPhone because you have Surat kind of documenting um, their daily life. And then you also have Deepa Mehta doing the proper filming as well. Like it's just, it's a really interesting visual look to the film. Um, it, it's a lot of what you would expect, but it's still very much a compelling story, especially when Surat talks about um, falling deeply in love with this particular man who only showed affection and true care for her when they weren't out in public. But then when he was in public or events that she would be um, performing, because she also does performance on the side um, that has also its own religious ties, he would sh shy away. So, you know, you're, you're watching this, this person almost kind of forced into a limbo that they're not happy with being in. But unfortunately, because of the way how society is, especially if she, when she's home or when they're at home with their mother, there's a lot of, there's a threat of violence that could come from other family members. You know, there's a lot of people wanting Surat to present as male simply because it makes their lives easier, quote unquote, um, so that they don't have to deal with any type of perceived disrespect or shaming of the family. So no one actually seems to care about Surat's feelings. They just care about the image that um, and and st structures that society seems to have. And it, it was a really interesting film. And um, there's a lot of great queer stories that are at TIFF this year. And, and Surat's definitely one um, I think is worth checking out. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a point of view that we don't normally get um, for all the stories that we we hear about and see, you know, in, in English and Western speaking countries, mm -hmm. we don't get this kind of point of view where there's such a cultural, there's, there's so much, um, as you say, you know, the culture is so, it is so demanding on the individual. And so that the family is like threatening the individual because that individual by being themselves by being non-gender conforming is a threat to the family unit. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're going to shame us, so we're going to beat you up, which is a danger and which has happened to Surat. Yeah. And, um, and the disrespect that Surat keeps getting over and over and over again, but the resilience um, that, they, that they're you know, exhibiting um, it's it's just uh, it's inspiring, I think. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, fascinating, and again, especially because there's certain aspects of the Indian culture that seems very 
open to trans people existing, but just not when it's in their house. It's a really yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and the film explains that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, do you want to uh, talk about sorry, not sorry? Okay, like here's a shift for you. <laughs> here's a here's a deplorable human being. This is sorry, not sorry. Uh, reexamines the case of Louis C.K. Uh, and I, I'm just disgusted with the whole idea of it because. Uh, I just recently saw the documentary and I just feel like it just dug up the old wounds. Like it just, yes, of course it dug, dug everything back up again because they're re-examining it. Uh, the two filmmakers and they are Carolyn Sa and Kara uh, Moniz. So, so they go into the whole thing right from the beginning of the rumors about Louis C.K. and his sexual harassment, which basically involved masturbation in front of women. And the weird thing that he did, which was he would sometimes even ask for consent. Sometimes. But, you know, as a woman, it's like, what do you do with that? And especially the the film very wisely goes into the whole like power dynamic what do you do and that's really the issue here that's really um why the documentary is important is because it it presents the whole thing of well it's not just about a man and a woman it's about the fact that there's a power dynamic which there often is in society the men are often more powerful they're you know often much more privileged Let's face it, this is a society that's still, you know, dominated by men who have all the power. And in the case of stand-up comedy or the whole comedy world, uh, I I didn't really know that this had been uh, like sort of a a worst-kept secret for so long. And that he had so many powerful friends that knew about it. And some of them but not all like that that's the 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 thing that i wish the film was able to do but i understand that they probably could not get those people to appear in the documentary and they don't even talk about that which i wish they did this is sort of like like a primer this is sort of i i feel like these two filmmakers tried and someone else needs to go in and really get to the bottom of this and really call like call names out there there are certain references to certain celebrities that that were friends of ck louis whatever whatever we're going to call him um friends of his but they don't really call him to task in this documentary they do concentrate on some of the women affected some of the female comics and they do they are able to tell their stories which is which is very very important um, but the frustrating thing I've found with the experience, and I think that was partly the point of the documentary, was that you you hear the women's experience and then somehow CK, Louis CK, see somehow he still ends up on top, like dominating, winning, you know, and he still has a, like some sort of a career. 
which that's the reality. And I think that's the importance of the film coming out now is that if people didn't know that this film is going to tell you exactly what is going on now. Um, and yeah, it's got me like, it's not a good note to end on. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, I have two films about, okay, you go um, ahead. <laughs> that are about women. That this I one think... is just going to leave me like, you know, I'm going to start swearing in a minute. So we yeah, don't want yeah. to no, 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 that's, that's completely understandable. I'm just going to quickly talk about two documentaries. They're, both centered around women and strong women um, that I, I think are, are worth seeing. The first is Bye Bye Tiberius, um, and it is a film directed by Lena um, Sulalem. And my again, my apologies if I mispronounce the name, but she is actually the director of actress um, Hiam Abbas, who many people might know from The Visitor or more recently the hit series Succession. And this film. She's the daughter. Yes, the director is the daughter of um, of this actress, and it's the film basically looks at four generations of women in in, in this family and and their family as and their ties to um, Palestine and just the history and like starting from when you know uh, the director or I guess yeah the director's great great grandparents were forced to leave Tiberius uh, because of, of conflict. And then you just see each generation of women deal, having to deal with like the political stuff of the, of the, of their particular era, but also the cultural gender norms. Um, and you, you see like which ones got to, to go to school. And then by the time you get to Abbas's um, generation, she didn't necessarily want the, to simply be a, a married woman. She wanted to pursue arts and then, you know, kind of fell for uh, an Englishman, which also caused some problems, because you know, cultural problems. So there's a, a lot of those stories kind of intersecting. And you, you also find out about one one of the women that was kind of stuck in this other land that had to sneak out to visit. Like, there's a lot of family history, but it's done in such a way that you actually feel like, you know, these women by the end of the film. And, you know, you're you feel heartened by despite all the struggle, these women have still been able to survive and help, you know, provide for the next generation. Yeah. I think, I think part of that, well, I think a great deal of that has, has to do with the fact that there's a lot of home movie footage in mm -hmm. the film that is used and uh, the way that it's used, I think it's used in a really smart way. I think, a lot of like the voices of all the generations of women are there. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of, um, you know, the kind of joking around that families do the teasing and there's a lot of old photographs and things like that. Um, and that builds up you know, what you were talking about, that sense of the, of the individuals, of the people, of the family, of the generations of the struggles. Um, but yeah, more importantly, it, 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 it creates like real people for us as opposed because the, throughout the film, the film is still telling us the history of the region, which is the history of the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And that's why, you know, originally the, the grand, great grandparents were kicked out and like certain things then in the film happen. Um, but this, this creates a more vivid picture of people, of individuals, um, 
than we can get, than anybody can get from just like the news or from history books or, you know, this is, um, these are, are humans. These are like families. These are women who've mm -hmm. had to struggle through this, through these conflicts and being kicked out of their homelands and being kicked out of their areas they love so much that they were attached to so much. Yeah. And the, and the last one I'll talk about quickly, just to end on an uplifting note, um, is COPA 71, directed by Rachel Ramsey and James Erskine. And this documentary tells the tale of the first uh, Women's World Cup that wasn't officially sanctioned as a World Cup, and I think to this day is still not sanctioned as an official World Cup. So it follows the events in 1971 where... Several countries, ranging from Argentina to England to France, Mexico, what have you, all converged in Mexico to have this Women's World Cup. And you get to hear from women from each of the six teams or so that were competing. Um, and they get they tell you about their history and how a lot of them came from regions where either they were told not to play soccer because that's a, a men's thing or soccer was something that they had to do Um in private or there wasn't enough funding facilities. And yet through all of this, this world cup was a massive hit in, in Mexico and the way how the film gives you the history about the women, but also creates a sense of drama as it's following each match I thought was, was quite well done. Um, and a lot of the women are giving their kind of own commentaries off on certain games and they still have that kind of, um, fighting spirit that you get on the pitch, you know, that, they're they're still kind of cursing underneath their breath certain players that did certain moves and <laughs> whatnot and and then you also get a look at like how women's sports especially back then was highly sexualized to to try and diffuse the whole notion of oh they're not like men they're softer but you know they they still look like women that can play soccer and there's even questions about pay um and with who's making money off of this event. So it covers a wide spectrum and then ties it back to, you know, modern um, women's soccer. And especially in a year where we had a, a women's world cup, Copa 71 is coming out at the perfect time. And it, it really is a kind of empowering feel good doc that really makes you cheer for those women and all women that enjoy the game of soccer. Perfect note to end on. Mm -hmm. Thanks Courtney. All right. Okay. So I hope everybody is enjoying TIFF. And if not, uh, these are some films you should be looking out for that will be coming out. Most of them will be. Yes. So Courtney and I will be back to wrap up the film festival, the Toronto International Film Festival, this edition, this 2023 edition next time. So for Courtney Small, I'm Barbara Gosowski. This has been Frameline. Thanks for listening.